Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Over the past several years, I've been blessed to speak with some of the smartest people in the world. And these people continually challenge me to be at my best, up my game, and learn so much more. My guest today is one of those people, and he's a bit of a mad scientist. In fact, he's an inventor extraordinaire. When I get to talk to him, we cover an incredible landscape, anything from SPACs to patents to esoteric chemistry to things I don't even understand. And so today I wanted to click record on one of those conversations and have my friend Ian Mitchell tell you a little bit about his background, how he went from really construction, development, and into chemistry, and now is doing some amazing things with compounds like C60, and of course, what we get to talk about today a little bit later on, ozone. You can check out the show notes for this one or decodingsuperhuman.com slash Ian, that's I-A-N, and enjoy my conversation with Ian Mitchell. Before we go into our show, let's talk a little bit about transcriptions. Over the past year, some of you have had the opportunity to try blue canatine or just blue. I use blue canatine for a lot of strategic thinking. It allows me to connect dots that I previously didn't see before. It allows me to get locked in and think creatively. I use just blue as sort of my tax nootropic, if you will. If it's something where I require my brain to be focused more on things like financial modeling or on more repetitive tasks, I use Just Blue. But I encourage you guys to check it out, to try it. Head on over to troscriptions.com, use the code BOOMER, and you're going to get yourself 10% off. And let me know what you think. You can always email me and I'd love to hear your feedback. Let's get on with the show. So Ian, of all the places in the world right now, you're in Oklahoma and I, I think many people are are wondering why Oklahoma. And ironically, my uh, name is Boomer. So it's just <laughs> and I incredible technology and there culture. You go. So, there you go. <laughs> it was actually it was a familial decision. My wife's family was getting older, and she wanted to be closer to them. And we had been living in Austin for uh, going on two decades, and the. Uh, the option of being there or being here. To me, I, I my preference was Austin, but um, the kids didn't really get to be kids. Everyone was kind of a programmed young adult. And in our particular neighborhood, everybody had a starter castle with a giant, you know, gate around it and wall and fence. And, you know, and it was, I don't know, that that wasn't so thrilling to me. I think the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back in, in terms of my decision was a little kid called and said that he wanted to schedule a play date with my son who was eight at the time for like two weeks from Tuesday. And, and I just remember thinking, 
that is an issue. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, ride your bike over to the house, do something, you know, like a normal small child. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't yeah, nowadays. at eight years old have a Google calendar out, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Calendly at yeah. eight. Yeah, exactly. Uh, very, very cool. And so you're adapting to the Oklahoma culture. Have you chosen which side of the Red River shootout you want to be a part of? Uh, yeah, actually, I've had uh, kids go to both uh, OU and OSU. So of the two, my preference is uh, OSU, mm-hmm. uh, though I, I really am kind of, you know, ambivalent on the whole topic. But if I had to pick one, I actually think it's nicer. Just I know one, the one that I'm not terribly partial to or partial to has a much larger endowment and seemingly has, uh, you know, kind of a better technical side. But the other just has a better vibe. And really, in, in truth, for me, if if the, the options are more money or better vibe, I will 100% of the time go with better vibe. Ah, this is why you and I get along so fantastically well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's very, very true. Given your background, that's very true, obviously. So, Ian, uh, the... One of the things we want to get into today is, of course, ozone. But uh, for somebody, look, I've had the pleasure of talking to you many times. Um, but your background is, from my understanding, more in chemistry. But how did how does one become interested in that? Because I remember taking like eighth grade chemistry, you know, AP chemistry, whatever it was, and then it kind of faded away. But what sort of drew you into this world, if you will? Um, I was very good at it in high school. I was just kind of gifted. I actually, I I had, initially I had a little bit of an issue with it, but then I had a tutor who just took me to his lab and explained everything. And once I saw how everything was actually going to be utilized, then I thought, okay, this makes perfect sense. So then from that point on, I just crushed it. Mm -hmm. And, and it was what I actually wanted to do at the time was to do environmental cleanups. Um, my real goal was not to do applied chemistry or anything like that. It was actually to do just things that would benefit the environment. And so my two big interests were chemistry and music. And I, I went to school, I had a chemistry scholarship, but I also had a music scholarship and I studied. What, what instrument? Saxophone. Oh, really? I didn't realize you're a saxophone yeah. player. Okay. I, tr- oh, yeah. I tried yeah. that for like a couple of weeks and that, that didn't work out so well with my sports career at the time. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great, man. That was actually I think that informed a lot of the ways that I actually looked at molecular interaction mm-hmm. was through music, because in, in kind of the last analysis, everything really isn't, you know, how things bond ionically and, you know, all that sort of stuff, ligands and biochem and things like that. I don't really think they're actually the crux of it. I think you're, you're kind of missing the point if that's where you focus. It's really all about how things balance in terms of elegance um for harmonics and frequencies mm-hmm. and that it ultimately it's kind of funny because um i abandoned a lot of the the constructs that you know i was taught and they never intuitively felt quite right mm-hmm. uh, and then i saw uh, some work by the, the fellow named walter russell mm-hmm. and just thought it was brilliant and it, the moment i saw it he had an entirely different periodic table of the elements you know we all use the mendeleev periodic table yeah Walter Russell wrote his own and I looked at it and intuitively knew that it was completely right. And it literally, it's the only thing, you know, that I, that I keep on the wall in terms of a reference at the lab, because it's brilliant. And when you look at it, when you look at compounds in terms of how they actually function Mm -hmm. in lieu of, you know, grouping flowers together because they're all the same color, 
that's really not not the best way to do it. You know, I mean, if you're trying to go through some sort of ontology and group things and figure out how things are structured, sometimes the way they appear, though they share commonalities, is not the most um, truly accurate way to do it. Mm -hmm. And when you start looking at frequency responses and things um, moving harmonically, that's a more effective way to do it. And so Walter Russell's setup was just that. It was looking at harmonics and nodal interaction. And and it's funny because all of the representations you see are two-dimensional, but the whole thing, when I look at it, it's it's like music. It's all three-dimensional and it's kind of uh, spheres interrelating with other spheres and the dynamic interaction. I mean, it's all effectively waveforms and how, how they propagate and interact. And uh, it's just, it's just like a hologram. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I look at things, I get an intuitive sense of how to do some sort of recombinant process with them. And, and so far it, it seems to work out pretty well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you went from environmental cleanup to applied chemistry. What, what got you interested in the, the whole health side of things? Actually. So it was a bit of a circuitous path, really. I, I went from, environmental cleanups to music and then i decided that i just wanted to be a professional saxophonist all the time mm -hmm. so uh, i did that i, I do I, too but i'm just not talented enough <laughs> <laughs> well I, I moved from new orleans where i grew up i went to school in mississippi and then i went back and studied at the university of new orleans with a guy named ellis marsalis it's it explains why you're a saxophone player though yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah actually well yeah and i was third generation right mm -hmm. so in my family I, my mom is still actually a blues singer around New Orleans. Wow. So, you know, yeah, which is, which is pretty cool. You know, when we go to visit her, you know, sometimes she'll have to both go, grandma has a gig <laughs> and, you know, and split. <laughs> but I played in her band when I was younger and really my options were either really work at it diligently and be very good or just simply not do it. Mm -hmm. So I put, I put a fair amount of focus into it. And then I moved to Austin and I, I was, when I moved there, I was voted the best new jazz artist in Austin. There's a big competition for it, the Clarksville Jazz Fest. And so I was, I was making strides, but the problem was I never really clicked in terms of um, sort of the lifestyle of a musician. I, you know, I, I like staying up late, but I also like getting up obnoxiously early. And so I just, I, I'm very curious. And so I didn't, when I was playing professionally, I didn't really have much to do during the days. And so I, I was talking to my dad, who at the time was um, working as, oh, I think he was an expert on the Convention of International Trade of Endangered Species or something at that moment, and then became an archaeologist, an anthropologist, and a professor. And he's just kind of, he's very bright, so he adapts pretty rapidly to whatever he's curious about. And, and I was talking to him, and he said, you know, why don't you just do, you know, like construction or something during the day like you did when you were in school? And I thought, oh that'd be great. I can do music at night and do construction during the day. So I got a job as a handy dandy carpenter and, and it became incredibly apparent that if you have your wits about you and you're smart, you, you just, and you actually show up on time and aren't drunk that you've ousted roughly 90% of the competition. <laughs> so, so in the span of li literally about six months, I went from just doing carpentry to being, you know, in charge of an entire subdivision, um, which was kind of a meteoric sort of, movement in terms of uh, managerial ability but you know it is what it is and so then i i thought you know this is fun maybe i'll do architecture so i started doing architecture and designed a bunch of buildings around austin and then i built a resort called the lake austin spa resort where i was the director of design and construction in charge of all the architecture engineering contracting everything 
And, and I just, I studied, I was curious about all of it. I mean, I legitimately loved it. And then I started doing real estate development and then building tons of houses and condos and things like that around Austin. And then I had amassed a, a pretty vast portfolio and then everything imploded uh, around 2008, 2009. Yeah, like, and I, like everything, <laughs> 2008, 2009. <laughs> And, and I found myself having uh, been the uh, the beneficiary <laughs> of not really thinking it through so clearly. I was kind of, I continually kept going all in. So I was uh, very much without the vast amount of money that I had set aside at that point because I kept rolling in and thinking, it'll turn, it'll turn. Yeah. And it didn't turn, shockingly. Uh, in retrospect, you know, you make those choices and go, wow, that was that was not the smartest move in the world. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I was looking at my retirement portfolio and I thought, God, I'm going to have to work forever to just make that back. And I was looking at it and I ran the numbers out to 70 years and I thought, God, ugh, it's not so hot. But then I'm kind of a math nerd. So I ran it out to 90 years and thought, well, that looks not so shabby. And then I just for grins, I ran it out to 110 years and thought, wow, that would be fantastic. I could basically do whatever I wanted. And then I thought, okay, so really the question at hand here is I just need to be able to live to 130 without any biological degradation. And then I'm set. <laughs> and, uh, and I, and literally, and that was kind of the thing. And I, and I literally thought, well, I'm oddly well tooled to crack that egg. So I'll do that. And so then I started doing uh, a lot of nanoparticulate work and kind of fell back into the, the chemistry side of things and started doing uh, some work. And I and I had done things in the meantime. I had developed a lab on chip assay system for Chem 20 and stuff like that and patented, you know, sm small scale, small scale spectroscopic equipment in, in the midst of doing all the other stuff. So I never really let it stop and die out. I just kind of pushed it to the back burner. But when I started thinking, okay, I need to figure out figure out this whole you know not aging biological degradation thing. I just jumped in full force and started working on carbon sixty, mm -hmm. and really did a deep dive into nanoparticulate, and then found that it made perfect sense to me. And so I started doing some patents, and then I started doing research with longevity and uh, my lab animals. So I was able to extend their lifespan ninety three percent beyond the normal the normal point. And I was using a thing called P53 knockouts where you extract the P53 tumor suppressor gene. And because every, they're, you know, they're the unfortunate cancer rats, you know, that have, they idiopathically produce tumors. So they just pop up all over and they're the ones you always see with the unfortunate bulbous tumors everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they have very defined mortality curves though, which is why it was of interest to me because um, I was working on an inflammatory response. And I figured with an older creature, as they biologically start to degrade, then you should see a cytokine response flare up much more rapidly and you should be able to isolate things for, uh, or isolate things for inflammatory responses. And that's what I was actually working on. So I, I use those guys, but the benefit kind of thereafter that I didn't really know going into, it was because they had such well-defined mortality curves. I was able to look back and go, huh, these guys should not have lived nearly this long. And so they lived 93% longer on average than they should have. And they didn't have tumors. Mm -hmm. And so when I did the first necropsy on the first on the first rat, it uh, it had it had died of a femoral hemorrhage. And and I thought, well, maybe I'm just missing something since I don't you know spend my day doing veterinary necropsies, right? So I sent the next off to a vet pathologist to make sure that it was accurate. 
and there was no incidence of cancer. And then the, the third, and, and then it just kept happening like that. And then we'd find slightly anomalous things in the tissues, but nothing that was actually overtly cancerous and none of them died from cancer. They all died of old age mm-hmm. with the one dying from oral hemorrhage. And it was just very perplexing, but um, that was kind of, uh, it sort of pushed me way ahead of the curve in terms of looking at longevity and responses on, on, on inflammatory markers like cytokines. I was able to figure out how to negate the cytokine response, which ameliorates all sorts of issues in terms of, you know, autoimmune conditions and other things like that. So I really got very deep into the, uh, into the applied research on carbon nanoparticles and did a lot of patents and developed an anti-metastatic serum to, you know, inhibit the metastasis of cancer and then, you know, serums to regrow hair and all sorts of stuff that, that, you know, prior to really looking at those molecules, there were a lot of intractable issues, but after you start adding tools to the toolkit, um, you know, suddenly like, wow, look, I have a screwdriver. What can I do with this? Yeah. You know, so I, so I started tinkering with that and that, uh, that led to a conversation with, uh, Dave Asprey, um, from Bulletproof because my research started to catch a little notoriety about, about the longevity effects that I was getting. And then after that, I really kind of jumped into the, uh, the biohacker space. I'd actually, on the note of Bulletproof, I had never done coffee like in my entire life. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> even with that sleep schedule, you never did coffee once. No, wow. I, I meditated. Yeah. I meditated at the time and, you know, it was like a avid vegetarian. Like I, I actually haven't had meat for I guess 27 years now, wow. which normally I don't actually recommend because I don't think it's the healthiest diet style. Mm-hmm. I actually think, you know, something like pescatarian or doing grass fit meats is actually way better for you. But just my whole thing was trying to, to find ways to keep myself mentally clear and, you know, just looking, looking for acuity. Mm-hmm. And so to that end, I had just gone through and systemically eliminated things in my diet that I thought were slowing me down. And I had never done any sort of stimulant like that. Uh, occasionally I'd have black tea or something, but that was, that was it. And then I heard Dave Asprey talking on a kind of an obscure podcast in 2013 and thought, huh, you know, the biochem on that makes sense. I'll check that out. So and I and personally, I thought coffee was awful at the time. You know, fast forward. Okay, finally, fast something forward. you and I don't get a, don't agree on. Okay. Well, okay. So fast forward eight years, and I sucked the stuff down like nobody's business. <laughs> um, but you know, it was one of those things where I thought, okay, I remember actually at the time I I, I bought all the stuff, and then I had you know some grass fed the carry gold butter and then I got the brain octane oil and I started blending it up. And I actually have my notebooks where I was doing, you know, journaling exactly what I was doing as an experiment every morning starting in June of 2013. And uh I after I started taking it, I thought, oh my God, this stuff's fantastic. Who knew? You know, and obviously everyone knew that coffee, not shockingly, was really great. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's uh yeah, that's it was just a shock to me. And so uh, I I have said constantly doing doing coffee all the time now but uh yeah it's actually it's funny i started doing it because the biochem made sense and it really did you know and it was uh it was palpable too when you took it you could feel it Mm. and so i just got more and more kind of into the whole biohacking thing and then started looking at different ways that i could apply um you know either compounds that i was developing or or chemicals that i was developing um, or in some cases, you know, mechanistic things like 
neural responses from TDCS units I build for myself. <laughs> I was always I was always trying to optimize things, mm-hmm. right? So you know, one time I was I spent a couple months really doing a deep dive into uh, into nootropics because I wanted to be really, really kind of at the the cutting edge mentally, and I didn't feel like I was quite there. So I was uh, tracking my mental performance on the Cambridge Brain Sciences website. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there were about 77,800 people on the site constantly tracking mental performance. So yeah, pretty good. But I could never exceed the 83rd percentile when I would do the battery of tests. And so I spent a couple months really drilling down into nootropics. And then I uh, ordered all this stuff. And at the time, I I just built the TDCS unit to try and kind of upregulate the pace of the of the potentiation neural potentiation for the signaling mm-hmm. and then i did all these uh hardcore nootropics and i went back and i it was a sunday morning and i took the battery of tests again and just crushed it and and i remember literally it was kind of peculiar and i and i've read a lot since then and other people have had this experience where your actual color perception shifts you know mm-hmm. things like coloracetam um and so one of the compounds was a it was phenylparacetam yeah. And, oh my God, it was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. You know, I literally felt like the lights came on. Mm -hmm. And then I took the entire battery of tests and and maxed it. Well, at least myself and I think three other people had ever scored that high. And and it was easy. And that was the thing. And then everything down-regulated. It's kind of... It was kind of akin to the the effect that you get if you do uh, a nasal shot of vasopressin, Mm -hmm. where you can just suddenly, you know, memorize... 200 Chinese characters in one shot with 100% accuracy that you've never <laughs> looked at before. You know, there, it's just, it's that kind of the beauty that there's so much untapped potential yeah. that we have that we never really delve into. Mm. And so I, and, and I, I actually, because my dad, um, you know, our mutual friend, Ted is, you know, a really brilliant guy. And my dad is one of the other guys who's kind of got that sort of one of the highest IQs in the world. And, because of that, I was always around that as a kid and it was always a little daunting. So I was always trying to, you know, honestly, just trying to keep up and never really thought that I'd be able to. So I was always kind of pushing the bounds to see what I could do to try and uh, pace up a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Well, now I have to keep up with both you and Ted. So it's, uh, it's always keeping me on my toes. That's for sure. Uh, I, and so somebody like you, when you, when you look at your your projects and I, i've seen the mind map right but when you look at what what projects to take on and how you uh, approach problems is it a question that somebody brings to you typically does it all fall under this one theme of longevity and living to 130 because retirement becomes so much easier then uh or is it like how do you start to filter out uh what works or what interests you and what doesn't well, when I opened my lab seven, I guess actually eight years ago now, uh, when I opened the lab, I wrote down six things on the board that I wanted to solve before I died. And so it was aging, cancer, clean water, global warming, uh, superluminal travel, and free energy. And those were the ones that I wanted to knock out. And I figured if I could knock those out, then I would make a big dent for humanity, right? To heal things. <laughs> yeah, a bit. yeah. And so to that end, anything that sort of falls in the, the, the structure of those under the umbrella of one of those, then I generally try and do it. Or if someone's doing something that I feel is really noble and they're trying to help people and heal people or 
know, heal the planet or something like that, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. And because I, I do have a, a bit of a peculiar skill set, and I think it's because I have such a varied background in terms of I'm not really a specialist. Um, as fate would have it, I do seem to be pretty adept at picking things up quickly. Mm-hmm. So I can I can learn enough to actually navigate uh, navigate through most things. But it's really, it's just a matter of does it ethically uh, align with what I'm trying to do? And the overarching theme really isn't longevity. The longevity was just, the more I got into it, it was just something that was, uh, it got me moving in the right direction. But the farther I got into it, the more I realized this is where it feels right to be. And so there was kind of a, a peculiar alignment between you know my brain and my heart. And when that all synced up, uh, that was kind of the magic. You know, when I was doing things that I was passionate about, where I felt it would it would help people, you know, the projects as of late, you know, the first one was obviously aging mm-hmm. and, you know, the 130 year thing that was that was just at a first blush. And it actually at 93 percent for a normal male in the U.S., that would work out to about 152. Mm-hmm. And that was and, and honestly, I think that's very easily doable. Um, you know, since then, I've looked at things like you know, Shia Farati's work in Israel, where he's showing, you know, uh, retrograde effects and, and telomeres. And, you know, when you, when you get, uh, you know, your telomerase kicked in and your telomeres start moving in retrograde and, and actually lengthening, um, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that said, just as a quick digression, the, uh, the idea of just living to, you know, a 93% extension, I've way blown past that at this point. I mean, that was, you know, six, seven years ago now. So I, at this point, I, I would be shocked if if the idea of living anything less than three or 400% longer than normal lifespan is where I would actually settle because the science says that it's there. It's funny because um, people oftentimes ask me like, you know, well, you don't have any data back that supports that. I have some animal data, but all of the data I have in people is just, you know, from watching the beneficial effects uh, of the lack of degradation or the, the reparations of their system mm-hmm. um, where they become more mobile and more mentally astute and things like that. So yeah, the, the longevity thing, just a small component. Mm-hmm. Really, it's, I mean, like you said, you've seen the mind map of what I'm working on. Projects um, where I, I feel people like, uh, you know, a non-addictive opioid or anxiolytics or uh, quantum shielding um, for gamma rays, things things that I think you know will fall into the category of one of those six things. One of the big projects that I just did was a carbon negative concrete, mm-hmm. and so it you know it extracts um, carbon generally account or concrete generally accounts for about eight percent of the annual CO two burden. Mm-hmm. And so I was asked to come up with a way to see if I could do a carbon neutral concrete, and I made a carbon neutral concrete, but then I thought. This was pretty simple. I bet I could beat this. So I went back and rejiggered the, uh, the chemistry a bit, and I was able to end up with um, negating the eight percent and then pulling out another twenty four percent. So a net reduction of thirty two percent. And and obviously, it's not going to be ubiquitously adopted mm-hmm. uh, across the entire planet. But if it were, if all of the concrete went to this, then suddenly there'd be a thirty two percent reduction in the annual greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. which going back to my list, you know, fell under the category of, you know, things to worry about in terms of global, global warming. warming. Yeah. Yeah. And then the cancer stuff, I, I'd say that's not quite a done deal. Um, but in terms of metastatic spread, yeah, I knocked that out. And so oddly, you'd, you'd think that would be a, a bigger thing that would have caught, you know, a fair amount of press, but it, it really seems to go unnoticed. But 
granted, that's a giant industry. And I think the, uh, I don't really want to tangle or stand up and scream. Yeah. You know, look here, look here, pay attention because it's, you know, but that's the kind of thing that people just get destroyed by, um, crushed by an industry like that. Mm -hmm. And then the other things, you know, I I really think space travel is going to be kind of pivotal. So I've worked a fair amount on that, developed a new ionic propulsion system and then gamma shielding um, using fluxons and some other things. And because some of the components that are missed are, you know, the moment you move out of the magnetosphere, gamma rays are just going to eviscerate your gut biome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you make it to Mars and you set up a colony there, that's great. But you're going to be just very genetically um, <laughs> distorted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't I don't want, you know, like people have a poster of a thalidomide baby and go, oh, my gosh, they were so healthy. You know, (laughs) and if you completely destroy a human's uh, genetics and then you start having kids in some distant remote world, things are probably not going to go so well. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the uh, one of the things I wanted to take out was, you know, looking at if, if that's the next move for humanity to make sure that we're safe. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. So one of the simple things was gamma shielding, you know, in an efficient way. I mean, there are other guys who've worked on gamma shielding, but nobody had anything that was really solid. So I developed a, a pretty an elegant system to do it. And then propulsion, um, the idea of strapping yourself to a bottle rocket uh, is just not terribly well thought out. No. I mean, I, I, I appreciate that it's, um, it's the approach that, you know, everybody's used since Werner von Braun, but um, n- not the best tech, really. And it's just not a terribly good approach. I mean, you know, they, because we discussed it, you know, kind of what I developed to mm-hmm. ne- negate that as a necessity. I just want to move the needle. And, and so really going back to the, the question prior to <laughs> my tangential approach to everything, um, I just want to help. And I, I really do legitimately want to move the needle. And I've got I figure if I'm if I'm lucky and I actually take my own medicine and do hopefully what I'm trying to do, then you know I've got a couple hundred years to play with to make uh, to make a difference. So Amazing. that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. All right, Ian. Where does ozone fit into this equation, and how did you become interested in ozone? Interrupting our regularly scheduled programming to talk about biocharged. Yes, you're listening to the inventor of biocharged resistor on this show today. And he's going to get into how this formulation really came about a little bit later. It's absolutely incredible. In fact, it involves people like Nikola Tesla and a few others. But after you listen to that story, I want you guys to head over to biocharged.co and check out their product, the biocharged resistor. They have subscriptions. Have one time purchases, and I think it's worth trying, especially if you have gut health or immune system issues. You get all of the effects of ozone therapy without really having to go to your local center. Check it out, biocharged.co. And let's get back to my conversation with Ian Mitchell. Okay, so um, a friend of mine, um, Bobby Dillard, has uh, a, a real estate company that I, I really like. He structured everything very well, and, and I admire the way he put it together. It's, it's truly, it's a really brilliant organization. And we were talking, and he needed to come up with a way in early 2020 to be able to have his daycares open up at all of his different facilities um, that were clean and disinfected. So. 
we started looking at things like UV lighting and looking at UVC and, you know, trying to trying to come up with ways to clean the space. But the issue with UV lights is that unless it's in a direct line of contact or primarily direct line of contact, when you do get some wave interaction, but uh, with, with the actual light, you're not going to be able to knock out a virus or anything like that. So then we started pondering ozone and then when we're in, we're both biohackers. So we, uh, we looked at it and Bobby said, now I wonder if we could just make this an ozone treatment. Um, you know, kind of if we could replace say like autohemotherapy, which is, I don't know if you've ever done autohemotherapy, but mm -hmm. it's actually, it's a really cool thing to do. You basically, you extract, a, you know, maybe a hundred mils or of blood and then you inject ozone into it. So this would be like the ozone, 10, 10 pass or something like that. Yeah, is that's basically yeah, it is like ten pass, but it's a single pass. Okay. So ten passes, you know, you're you're literally doing it in multiples, but this is a single pass of the ten pass. Mm -hmm. And so you extract your blood, you mix the ozone, and the ozone ozone's about the third most reactive chemical species. So there are a hundred million molecular interactions in a second. And so when you put the blood in the bag and you hit it with the ozone, you actually see it change color and you you mix it up a little bit and it turns this generally much prettier, lighter color. And then you reintroduce it in your system. Um, and you get all the benefits of the stabilized ozonides, you know, because like I said, there's no actual, people think that they're injecting ozone. They're not. Mm -hmm. the, the ozone reacts so rapidly that what happens is you end up with a, a like a, a reduction oxidation reaction, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got this, this redox process that happens and it happens very, very rapidly. So you end up with these stabilized ozonides, which just have an, an unstable oxygen kicked off, just like ozone is O3 in lieu of O2, O2 being stable, O3 having this very, you know, unstable um, capacity to want to pull up, off electrons and oxidize them. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, um, we thought, well, okay, that's maybe a thing to do. And we kind of pondered the idea of like, well, going in and having autohemotherapy is sort of a pain in the ass because it takes, you know, an hour and you have to sit there and have your blood drawn. And then uh, <laughs> the question came up when we were nauseatruitive, could you do that in a pill? Is there a way you could take something yeah. in a pill? And I mean, obviously, because it's like the convenient, easy way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I didn't know. And so I started looking at what had been done before. And one of the things I found was in the late 1800s, Tesla had made this portable ozone generator. And in the early 1900s, 1904, he thought he started a thing called the Tesla Ozone or ozonated oil company. And it was literally, it was, he was taking olive oil and he was bubbling ozone through it while it was above this bay of high strength magnetic field emitters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then the oil had all these magical healing properties. And I, I looked at it and I thought, well, well, okay, that seems reasonable. So I started looking at all the companies that are doing it today. And, they, and there were a fair amount of people that were making ozonated oil. But then I, I started talking to them and I said, okay, so what's the process? And they said, well, you know, it takes two and a half weeks and you ozonate the oil and it's kind of like a triple pass redox reaction. And everybody across the board was doing the same thing. And I was thinking, you know, Tesla was really bright. Yeah. He probably would not have taken eight weeks and had this very costly magnetic field array under these things if there wasn't a purpose. So I started thinking, why did he do that? And then it hit me that he was doing it because you're dealing with a polar molecule. And if you basically get them to move in alignment, you can kind of get everything going single file mm -hmm. rather than in sort of a chaotic structure. So he was actually 
as as the ozone bubbles through, the viscosity changes and it becomes you know a more gel-like substance. And he was doing the very brilliant thing of actually aligning all the molecules in you know in a field force line so that he could get more active units per volume without them interacting and being spent. And it was truly, it was just, it was brilliant. When I realized what he had done, I thought, holy cow, that cat was so far ahead of everybody else in his day. I mean, it, it, honestly, it must have been a little bit lonely to be that guy. He probably had like, you know, I mean, if you watch the documentaries people. on him, it just seems like there's a, he is a pretty lonely character in certain points. So. Yeah, it really does seem like that. Mm-hmm. You know, he, uh, I, I would imagine he probably didn't have a whole lot of people to interact with that mm-hmm. really got it. Um, so I, I looked at that and I thought, damn, that's great. I, I should do that. And then I thought, well, should I really do that? Because I, I did actually experimentally do it just to see if I could do it. And it wasn't that much of a trick, but then I thought, what would Tesla do if he were doing this today? Mm-hmm. You know, cause I've got a hundred years of really cool physics knowledge and tech that wasn't around then. And I thought, ah, I have an inkling. So then I started trying to figure out how I could break it down and the farther I got, the more it actually, in terms of strength, actually started to approach being able to replace autohemotherapy. But you couldn't do it in a in a little dose just because the molecular interaction wasn't strong enough. Mm-hmm. So then, um, and this this borders on a bit esoteric, but it's just the reality of how it actually happened. There's a there's a fellow named Barry Morgulin, who's an endoscopic surgeon, mm-hmm. but his his real gig. Everybody jokes about him as being kind of like Doctor Strange. And it's uh, it's kind of accurate. He's a little bit on the uh, the far fringe of things, but we were at uh, Paleo FX in 2019, and he did this thing that I didn't quite understand at the time. He opened a pack of protein powder and scooted it into two separate piles, and he put his hand above one of the piles for just a few seconds, and he said, "Taste it." And I tasted the regular one, normal protein powder. I tasted the pile that he had just held his hand over, and it was delicious. Like absolutely amazing i thought that's incredible you know there was no change in color no change in heat so there wasn't any thermal emission nothing had jumped to a different orbital shell i didn't see any evidence of interaction and i asked him i said what did you do and he said i charged it with source energy and which you know you tell a scientist i charged it yeah what was your what was your reaction in that moment (laughs) my reaction was i just tasted it so either my taste buds have been hacked or there's something fundamentally different. So, you know, a lot of times I think good science generally stems from the idea that we don't, you know, we're just operating on a map based on the technology we have at the moment. And science is really a function of something that's, it's a construct locked in time. And so we're dealing with, you know, 21st century science right now. And that doesn't really, it's not terribly descriptive. I mean, I, I know that if you went back 500 years and looked at the technology that we have now, you would be awestruck. And I think in the future, a lot of the things that seem fringy or spiritual or, you know, where you're dealing with quanta and things like that, they'll have a much better grasp on it because time will progress. We'll have tools to actually drill down and analyze it. In fact, some of the things that I've been working on lately, I can't actually analyze the effect of what I'm doing on the compounds, I have to go for a secondary effect. I have to look at what does it do to the blood? Mm-hmm. You know, like like actually do dark field microscopy and say, okay, how is this changing? What does it actually look like? And when you see a hugely pronounced effect there, you can go back and go, okay, something's different. I don't yet know exactly what, but something's different. So 
in this case, I didn't know what the hell, you know, I, you know, imbued it with source energy really meant. And I, you know, I, sadly not wanting to seem the fool, I, I didn't actually grill, grill him as to what exactly that meant. But I never lost sight of it because I could taste it, which meant I had receptors for it. And if you have receptors for it, then you can build something to test for it. Mm-hmm. And if you can build something to test for it, even if, you know, tangentially test for it, then you can start to kind of drill down through the periphery until you end up with something that you're affecting. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. I, I started thinking, well, if there was no change in temperature, that knocks out an entire category of things that could have happened. And if there was no change in color, that knocks out an entire category of things that could happen. So then I started thinking, well, what else can you what else can you do? And there, there's all sorts of things like, you know, people like output off and guys like that look at, you know, field effects and and kind of the, the quantum field, the bubbling zero point energy field. And there, there's there's a lot of really brilliant research in that sort of stuff. But I thought, well, okay, if I make this a model that I can just understand, I, I started thinking about the molecules um, as as related to say, you know, kind of like the, the old uh, Bohr model of the atoms because it's easy. In my head, I started thinking about the nucleus and the, and the, uh, the sun and then the planets and the orbital shells of the electrons. And I, and I thought, well, you know, if you look at the confined energy in a system, right, um, and you go back and you and you start looking at how that's been done since you know 1924, basically when we uh, we started drilling down into how wave mechanics worked, everybody looked at the the confined energy in a system as something where you know for the analogy I was just using um, the the confined energy are the planets revolving around the sun. Well, that's not actually the real oomph. The real oomph is the revolution of the planets, the rotation of the planets on their own axis, not you know the the revolution around the sun. And so I thought, well, you know, everything has spin, right? Bosonic and fermionic spin. So all things are moving. What if I entrained the spin? And then I started thinking about it. Well, okay, that that would make sense because it would be, you know, they're they're already spinning, but if I could make it coherent, then I could kind of quantize the the energy in these different little packets and get everything moving uh, at the same rate. And once I have them moving at the same rate, I should be able to use some sort of resonant function to bump up the energy levels. And so that's what I did. Because if you get them spinning more rapidly and change the fundamentals of spin, then the confined energy in the system goes up, even though from the outside, it appears exactly the same. Which is what I had seen with you know that protein powder was everything had the appearance of being exactly the same, but it was obviously fundamentally different. And so I started devising ways to do that and doing experiments around trying to see if I could amp up the the energy in a system uh, in terms of spin. And so eventually I came up with a way to do that. And then I thought, well, it's it's going to degrade, so I need to come up with a way to lock that in phase. And so then I started looking at holography and using uh, pulsed lasers. And if you've ever watched how you know someone makes a holographic plate. The thing that's really cool to me, at least, about a holographic plate is holograms, you know, you hold up the plate and it looks just like a a pretty image where you can kind of see through it. But all of the information is contained in every little piece of that. So if you shatter that plate and you have just one small piece, it contains all of the information of the entire system. Mm -hmm. And the, the other thing that's really intriguing is that if you shine a light through it, you can see that 3D image. But if you shine coherent light through it, then you can actually get a perfect recreation of that thing down to subatomic scale. 
And so you really do lock in the information that's confined in that system. So I came up with an array to pump these things up and then make a, a gel, in this case, an ozonated oil, and use the gel as the storage medium. Because if you look at a, a glass plate, glass is an amorphous solid. It's not crystalline. So the structure isn't as defined as everyone thinks. And over, say, the time scale of you know, 10, 15,000 years, you'd actually see it flowing down like a sheet of water that's out, it, it, you know, that's in a different temporal scale. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, if, you know, you can make a sheet of soap bubbles and watch them go down or a sheet of water in the same, but you think of glass as this very fixed, stable thing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's only very fixed and stable to us because we're locked in our own temporal scale. Mm -hmm. If you extrapolate that out and, and start playing with something like femtosecond pulse lasers, the difference between, you know, water or a gel and a piece of glass is far less than the difference in, in the actual pacing of the laser fire. Mm -hmm. So I basically made a, a holographic gel so that I could lock in, you know, using dichroic beam splitters in the whole nine yards, just like you would with any other sort of holography, lock in the information confined in that system and keep the states at that point. And that's what I did. And then, you know, kind of the proof is in the pudding. The uh, If you take normal ozonated oil and you ingest it, you get one effect. And if you take you know, the stuff that is the biocharge products and you ingest it, you get an entirely different effect. Mm. It's kind of, I jokingly, it's, you know, I say it goes to 11 because if, what you're in essence doing is turning up the volume of the molecule without changing the molecule. Mm -hmm. And because when it, when it has the interaction, you're not just looking at the one interaction because of the inherent energy in the system, it sets up a cascade. And that the impact of that reaction is far more pronounced. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a blitzkrieg, right? There's there's not a whole lot going on, but when you adjust the thing, your body thinks that, oh my God, I'm I'm experiencing this insanely large oxidative assault. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're not, but it doesn't know that. So it mobilizes, you know, SOP2, glutathione, your body's endogenous antioxidant defense regimens, mm -hmm. right? So you you propagate all these things up. In, in response to this huge threat that's just occurred. And you get all the benefits of that. But the reality is no giant threat has just occurred. You, it's just shifted your, you know, your physiological perception of the event. Mm -hmm. So kind of get the benefit without the detriment. So Ian, let's, let's just recap. You just hit a big portion of the benefits of ozone um, there at the end. But just for people that are, are listening right now and are saying like, hey, this sounds really, really interesting, fascinating. Traditional ozone therapy, what do people use it for? And then you mentioned that you took it to an 11 with the biocharge. What are some of the effects or the feedbacks that you're getting right now um, from various users? Um, well, actually, I would recommend anybody just go to the, the website. It's biocharge.co and, and look at the comments and people or go, you know, onto Instagram or, you know, Facebook and look at the comments that people are putting up. But it's um, it, historically people would use ozone to knock out viral load. Yeah. Uh, if you know, if you were having mental issues, mental fog, something that you thought might be coming from, you know, virus, bacteria, some sort of mold, you could use ozone. And it, actually, it's really phenomenally good. Um, you can do rectal insufflation. Um, you can do autohemotherapy. You can do ten pass. Uh, you can actually, I wouldn't recommend breathing it because it, it's, <laughs> yeah, stripped. that's one of the yeah. things that yeah. people say, just don't do. 
Yeah, no, it's it's a really that's a really really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of how reactive it is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the benefit is also the detriment if used in the wrong capacity. So people are noticing um, their their GI system gets kind of remodeled because your body. A lot of people say, well, oh, is it negatively impacting the healthy intestinal flora? And it would if it were having a direct interaction, but because it's it's going actually into the small intestine, it was, you know, I used a, a delayed release capsule so that it would actually open in the small intestine so you could get, get it perfused in your blood and more systemic as opposed to localized. Um, if, if everything opened just in your stomach, yeah, it could have an interaction with the healthy stuff, but it's really opening your small intestine and you're getting more of a systemic effect. So your body's own systems upregulate and, and you're just giving yourself more energy. You know, when you stimulate the mitochondria like that, because they get triggered thinking that there's this assault. So you have a mitochondrial upregulation and you actually feel it. You, you start to get a little heat, which is kind of funny just from, you know, the size, a third of a mil, you know, um, is pretty tiny, Mm -hmm. but you can actually take one capsule and feel yourself start flushing with heat. And that's because it's, you know, cranked up so that it has a much more pronounced impact. But because of that, that mitochondrial upregulation gives you more energy. Um, It definitely has an effect on your GI system. And, you know, if people have something like candida, um, you know, I tell them that they need to take binders with it because it really will eviscerate candida. And, you know, and you can play with the dosing too. Um, Typically, I just recommend that people just take one capsule because it's, it's got enough oomph, but some, some people do too. Um, I used to do just one, but in the past couple months, I've been doing two. Um, and I take them on an empty stomach in the morning. And the reason for that is if you have anything in your stomach, um, it generally goes in and it, it stops in your stomach. And so you end up with the interaction there. And if you have something like candida, it, it can be a little uncomfortable because it causes such a rapid die off mm-hmm. of the candida that you really need to take binders and things like that. So you don't end up with headaches or feeling really bad. Um, but like I was saying, you can, you can play around with the delivery. Take it on an empty stomach. It's more of a systemic effect. If you do have candida and you want to take that uh, out of the game, take it with a little food so it stays in your stomach, knocks out the candida. Really, you only need to do it for a few days. In fact, even things like Giardia parasites just get obliterated by this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple of days and you can knock out Giardia, which is honestly pretty fantastic. My mom had Giardia about a year yeah. ago. You know, unfortunately, I didn't have this at the time. So the medication they put her on was kind of disturbing and it took quite a while, um, you know, mm-hmm. live and learn, I suppose. Okay. So, so if, if I'm going to compare uh, ozone delivery mechanisms here and just sort of, you know, I'm one of those people that's evaluating, you know, should I buy the thousand euro ozone machine versus taking this? Is there a difference in the effect that I would get from like rectal insulation versus this, or is it sort of similar, if not better? Well, in, in terms of rectal insufflation, um, it's actually pretty similar if you take it on an empty stomach because mm-hmm. you're really getting it kind of to the same region. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me personally, um, I actually prefer the capsule uh, as opposed to the rectal delivery method. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, I think most but people listening to this would, would argue the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, in terms of efficacy, um, I, I wouldn't say that there's actually, depending on how you dose it, right, you can modulate it by taking more capsules or doing 
a longer period of inflation at a higher ratio of the ozone to the air mixture. There's lots of lots of ways you can vary it. Um, for me, it's actually because I've I've done pretty much most of the methods. Uh, I, it's it's actually about convenience, and I think this is just such an easy thing to do. Also, you really don't have the risk. It eliminates when you're when you're actually playing with ozone. If you miss the dosing. Mm-hmm you're pretty much pickled yeah. right? because you're stripping mucosal membranes and you're having a direct molecular interaction with something that is literally stripping off electrons and oxidizing things. <laughs> and that can have some deleterious consequences, you know, if if you really don't know exactly what you're doing. I actually don't recommend that people buy, I mean, I've got three units, but um, I, I'd say go to somebody who does it all the time. Yeah as opposed to being a cowboy and trying to do it on your own. I mean, you can definitely do it. If you're a biohacker, you know, you're probably going to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> but it's better if you, you know, the first time out of the gate, go to a doctor who does it all the time. Yeah. It's not that find a specialist. And it's only a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Um, for me personally, I like the ability to do it on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not, it's pretty cheap. I mean, it's less than 50 bucks and, you get to do it on the daily and it's just literally popping a pill before I do anything else in the morning and you can feel it. You know, it, it keeps me humming right along. So, um, 10 pass, if you've got something systemically, that's a big issue, 10 pass is better. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to end up with a, a far more pronounced effect and it's going to clean you out entirely. Um, so there's not really much of a comparison. I don't, Literally, the the way I designed it, it's not something that you're going to replace, you know, like 10 passes. Mm -hmm. You you might approximate a fraction because it is equivalent to kind of like doing a pass. But 10 passes is a much better system. And I've got a a friend, Matt Cook, who does that in San Francisco. And, you know, they have a tremendous amount of success doing that sort of thing. Amazing. Ian, what I want to do, because this is just the first of many conversations you and I are going to have, <laughs> lucky you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, I love this. And so what I want to do now is want to transition into a few rapid fire questions. Uh, okay. Because the, at the end, I want to give people a shot to go out and find the biocharge stuff. But uh, first question is, uh, let's start with this one. What excites you most about the health world right now? Ooh, quantum medicine. That is what excites me the most. I think people are actually getting to the point where they're starting to look for effects uh, in things that actually make a difference in lieu of kind of hacking at, around randomly. You know, it's, it's, I always go back to that Henry David Thoreau thing. And for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there's one hacking at the root. Mm-hmm. Be the guy hacking at the root. And in my, in my estimation, quantum medicine and quantum biology that's the route. That's where it's really at. It's it's the transition point where you go from kind of the ephemeral to the tangible, and also the point at which you can elicit the largest response with the least effort. Yeah. So that excites me. That actually excites me a lot. I, I'm going to write that down. Be be the guy hacking at the root. That's pretty. It's <laughs> a great quote. Um, what is your top trick for enhancing focus? You mentioned you played around with all kinds of stuff before, but what's your top trick these days? A uh, single top trick is meditation. Mm. That's uh, and and so I do a couple of different things. I do actually Dr. Morgan, uh, Dr. B. I do his techniques. Uh, it's energy for success. So I, I follow his stuff, and then I also do uh, TM and um, 
combination of those. And then I read voraciously. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say I read as it pertains to focus, I read things that are specific to enhancing my capacity, mm-hmm. which usually isn't um, things, you know, around mental performance. That's mental performance, I think, is actually kind of a second secondary effect. I think things that enhance your consciousness and make your consciousness stronger have the net effect of bringing you up across all fields. And it's kind of, you know, the rising tide raises all ships. And so I focus on things that really do have an impact. Um, When you, when you meditate, if you go into a deep state of meditation, you stimulate over 80% of your entire cerebral cortex. And the only way a, a guy can do that, you know, is in my opinion, you're either some tantric sex master or, or you're going to meditate because the two times that occurs is if people are in a deep state of meditation or they've had an orgasm that's lasted more than three minutes. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, not so much an option, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, we can, I don't uh, have the, uh, it'd be a fun project to work on, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But my hair would be consistently messed up and I'd have a really dumb look on my face all day. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think uh, for me, it's really, it's the, the acuity is a byproduct is staying focused and being, perceptive is really all just about expanding my consciousness. You know, the more I can do things like that, um, the, the more the effects are beneficial. You know, I, I'd recommend anybody you know, look at uh, David Hawkins. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever yeah. looked at his stuff, you know, power versus force. I, I really, I subscribe to the idea that as your consciousness starts to expand, your brain restructures and your capacity to do things and perceive things clearly gets enhanced. Yeah. And for me, the outcropping of being able to do all of these different fields is simply just the result of trying to shift my consciousness so that I can actually hold more in one shot. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the things that I've been able to develop are because I see interrelations and patterns in one field and related to another. When, when I was a kid, I mainlined this show called Connections. Yeah, It was a, from James Burke, the, uh, the British uh, journalist. And I still remember all those. And, you know, every couple of years, I'll go back and watch them. But it really it was this brilliant show because it just showed one one concept and then it took it all the way back to its inception. And the thing I was left with was it was never a straight line. Right. And so the idea of focus in our culture, a lot of times is single pointed focus, which does have its you know necessities in some certain aspects. But really, I think what you're trying to do is figure out how does enhanced focus benefit people. So my hack is look at it systemically and and kind of a holistic approach up your consciousness and your focus and acuity will go up immeasurably. Mm. Long answer. No, that that was brilliant. Thank you. Um, One uh, second to last question here, book, which has most impacted your life. Ooh, book that has most impacted my life. Um, the Razor's Edge, W. Somerset Mom. Why? Yeah. Why that one in particular? Um, because the idea that what you're focusing on may not actually be the thing that really has the most import to yourself and to humanity as a whole. And so it's, it, you know, the, the story there, I think when the, uh, when the protagonist really kind of gets it, as it were, he realizes that all of the things that he's been marching towards weren't necessarily the most pivotal or important things, you know, and the idea um, that's very vexing to a lot of people is sometimes you can do everything just right. 
and it still doesn't work. And sometimes you can do everything seemingly in, in an inappropriate fashion and everything comes together. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's just, it's uh, looking at the, the, the reality that we're in through a different lens and realizing that as people, we're coming from a very small perspective. I mean, it just in terms of the actual physics of it, you know, we perceive something like 0.00001% mm-hmm. of reality, just in terms of the bandwidth of what we're able to pick up in terms of the EMF spectra. And, you know, so that's akin to, because I was, I was trying to explain this to somebody and I said, that's akin to getting a thousand square foot flat and having to assess the entire flat by looking at a square inch, mm-hmm. you know, can you, can you really do that? You know, uh, or where you are in Amsterdam, you know, a three, a 335 meter space <laughs> and you're able to look at, you know, two, two square centimeters, um, does you know, you know that you're not going to have an accurate perspective. And so that uh, the razor's edge kind of just drilled that down for me a little bit. At the time when I read it, I thought, okay, you know, there's obviously more going on to reality than I'm perceiving. Uh, I need to adjust my awareness and try and perceive more, which that's when I really started trying to, you know, learn meditation, things like that in my early Mm twenties, because I, I just knew that there was more going on than I was able to perceive. And so it was, that was, that was the, hammer hitting the crystal at the exact right moment to cause it to cleave in the proper way. And it really launched me on a, on a path where I started looking at other things. And just a, as a second, uh, and I know you didn't ask, but as a second, actually that book that I had referenced, Power Versus Force by uh, David Hawkins, yeah. brilliant, just an absolutely brilliant tome. I, I wish more people uh, had access to that and would look at it because it just in and of itself, it's a brilliant work, but what it's, it's real overtones in terms of humanity and kind of looking out for one another fantastic yeah i I haven't delved that much into power versus force but i've read letting go which is Mm -hmm. also a fantastic book and highly recommend to both both of them obviously i'll check out power versus force though uh ian where can people find out more about you and biocharge and everything that you're up to um well let's see so for biocharge just go to Mm biocharged.co And you can look at everything there. And then my own site, uh, it's a bit clandestine. Uh, and I, I did this recently just in terms of getting, getting a little bit uh, more inquisitive responses from people going, well, we want to know more about what you're doing. So I, I have a site, Mitchell Sciences, um, that people can look at. But I don't actually even know if it's up yet. I think it may just be under construction at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, I'm not really terribly focused on that. I'm kind of spending spending my time trying to crack other puzzles that uh, you know that that have a little bit more weight. Yeah, I imagine of the problem set that you laid out earlier, this having your own website probably falls a little bit further down the the spectrum. Yeah, so. yeah, I I I do think it's neat when uh, luckily people. I'm not I'm not that hard to find. You can get me, you know, Ian Mitchell one on Instagram and just hit me up with a DM or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm pretty accessible. You know, it's, it's not like a real cloistered ivory tower. So. <laughs> Very cool. Ian, this is an absolute pleasure. And like I said, we're going to do this Likewise. again soon. I hope we can do it again in person. Um, that would be epic. I would love to do it in person. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. You're always welcome here. 
we can meet up in Colorado or DC or, or Amsterdam if uh, travel ever opens up. Yeah. I, I feel like I am coming your way uh, sooner than you'll be coming mine, but we'll, that's we'll, probably <laughs> true. We'll make that happen either way, but thank you, my friend. This yeah, has been well, an absolute pleasure. Truly. Awesome. Thanks, Boomer. And we'll link to all this sh- stuff in the show notes guys, but have an absolutely epic day. Every time I talk to Ian, I have a notebook and a dictionary nearby. In fact, every time I talk to him, I spend just as much time, if not more, looking up half of the things that he told me. And today's conversation was just a sample of one of those. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star rating. All of them are appreciated. And I can assure you guys that Ian will be back on the show in the future. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Ian, that's I-A-N, and have an absolutely epic day.